0: This is Michelle Carlo, and this show is Fish Out of Agua. This week, we're going to be talking about chickens, churches, and cities. Or I should say, pollo, iglesia, y ciudad. We'll get back to all those in a little bit. But right now, here's Fontella Bass from 1965 with Rescue Me. with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That song was Rescue Me by Fontella Bass. And I have to say that I always thought that was an Aretha Franklin song. And when I was Googling it to, you know, figure, find the song, I was shocked, shocked. So anyway, Fontella Bass from 1965, Rescue Me. And that song pretty much describes what I was thinking for most of that year. Oh, not in the romantic sense, because I was just five years old. But as in, please get me out of here. You see, 1965 was a pretty rough year for my family. My mom had been hospitalized on and off with postpartum depression, which in the 1960s was treated as a psychiatric infirmity on a level with extreme bipolar and associative disorder, or even schizophrenia, as opposed to a very common and treatable form of depression experienced by many women after childbirth. And my father couldn't take care of my brother and me by himself and also keep his job, so we had to go live with my grandmother and her husband, the man who always made sure to let me know that he was not my grandfather and the man who abused both my brother and me in different ways throughout that year and our childhoods. But whenever I was with my grandmother, I was safe. She took me with her as much as she could on her daily routine, visiting her now-blind mother, my great-grandmother, in a nursing home on Randall's Island, or to see one of the many people she'd minister to and pray with. I guess you could call my abuela a kind of curandera, a folk healer, although her practice was wholly of the Iglesia Pentecostal, the storefront Christian type of church that was her form of worship and where she was a member of note with several gifts of the Spirit. She'd take me to church with her every Sunday, and it was kind of a trip being there and not really understanding Spanish much at all, but it was also kind of fun. Uh, I was kind of cute, if unusual-looking kid for Washington Heights, and people used to give me a lot of attention, the good kind of attention, until this one Sunday just before Christmas, (laughs) but before we get to the story... Here's another song I would have heard as a small child on the only radio station I knew existed back then. Music Radio, WABC, 77 on your AM dial. Maybe this song is not from 1965 exactly, but it fits in with the story, so it's close enough. And now, from 1969, Norman Greenbaum and Spirit in the Sky. We're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. So, in 1965, when this next story of Fish Out of Agua happens, the average income per year was $6,450. The average cost of a new house was 13600 And your rent for an apartment, well, I don't know if this, what city this is, but the rent for an apartment was $118 a month. Think about that for a second. Oh, and that maybe that brand new car, that was just $2,650. Crazy, right? Well, also in 1965, the Vietnam War continued to escalate. Hindi became the official language of India, and President Lyndon Baines Johnson announced the creation of Medicare and the continuation of his war against poverty. (laughs) Now, the next incoming administration threatens to do away with medical insurance, inflicting a war on impoverished people. Yeah, exactly. In November of that year, we had the great blackout that affected 30 million people in the Northeast United States and Canada. Popular movies were Mary Poppins, The Curse of the Fly, and The Greatest Story Ever Told. Hit songs this year? 1965 included The Tracks of My Tears, Help, and Do You Believe in Magic, and one of my favorite holiday cartoons ever, no, ever, all right, A Charlie Brown Christmas, first aired. Ha! Believe it or not, I've watched that cartoon just about every single year since, and it's actually on my DVR waiting for me as we speak. Born this year of 1965 were Chris Rock, Viola Davis, and Jam Master J., and assassinated earlier this, that year was the African-American and Muslim minister and human rights activist Malcolm X in the Audubon Ballroom in Washington Heights, just a few blocks north of where my family was living. And now, Chapter 7 of Fish Out of Agua. This story is called Iglesia con Pollo, or The Chicken Church. The very first time I was sure I was going to hell, I was five years old, and sitting with my Abuelita and Titi Carmen in church. But it wasn't just any church, it was an Iglesia Pentecostal, one of the storefront churches that are part of every Latino neighborhood. And it wasn't just any storefront either, it was on the second floor above a vivero, a live poultry butcher, one of the few that was left in Washington Heights. My Abuelita had been going to this church for years, And in a neighborhood with an iglesia on every other block, she felt this one was special. And not just because it was also right around the corner of her apartment. Because when you ascended these stairs, plucked feathers stuck to the sides of your shoes like angel wings. When the congregation upstairs prayed in silence, it was underscored by the murmur of soft clucking. And the aroma of avian slaughter gave a whole new meaning to sermons about the redeeming blood of Jesucristo, Jesus Christ. Of course, these sermons were always in Spanish, so I barely understood a word of them. But my grandmother brought me there every Sunday anyway, perhaps in the hope, though, that by absorbing the sound of enough gloria Alleluias, I would somehow miraculously atone for the sin of not being a bilingual child. It was almost Christmas, and on this Sunday, I was in the front row where children weren't usually allowed. It was reserved for deacons, such as my grandmother, who, throughout each service, swayed, clapped, and took turns being slain in the spirit, which meant they would fall onto the floor and thrash around until they were revived by one of the nurses who always sat off to one side. The nurses smiled at me and gave a respectful nod to my grandmother as we passed them. In a congregation teeming with pious women, she was known as one of the most devout. One of the other deacons handed me a tambourine and told me in English that I could play along with the music. And this, after nearly a year of being told to shush, shh, hush, be quiet, and gallete, coño, (laughs) me lo dijo, cállate, te voy Pau pao. Being told I could make noise, this made me very, very happy. Each service always began with music, and we are not talking about any wheezy, moth-eaten Catholic church organ. This iglesia had electric guitars, horns, congas, and timbales, all played by men who, some of whom, looked as if they had stayed up all night arriving straight from their Saturday night salsa gigs, and I bet some of them had. And today, I was going to be their accompanist. I banged and shook my tambourine in perfect 4-4 time. I moved from the row of chairs to the aisle where I jumped and swayed, my hands in the air, singing Gloria, Alleluia, just like everyone else. The deacons were now smiling at me, and I played and sang even louder. Oh, so much fun. I was about to ask Abuelita if I could start going to church with her on Wednesdays and Fridays, too. When all of a sudden, I was pulled to the front of the room. All I could see were people's stomachs. Rolls of flesh over belts pulled too tight. Blouses badly tucked into waistbands. And a couple of missing buttons, until the crowd shifted and moved me into a line of people facing the pastor, who was holding a little glass bottle. The first man in line walked up to the pastor and tilted his head skyward. The pastor poured liquid from the bottle onto his thumb and pressed his thumb into the center of the man's forehead. And as the man bowed his head, my grandmother and the other deacons became, began praying indifferent strange languages, in voices that were either higher or lower pitched than the ones they usually had. They were speaking in tongues. I had seen this many times before, and it always fascinated me that each one of them sounded completely different every time. Speaking in tongues was considered a great gift. It was considered an even greater gift if you could interpret what you said which was what my abuelita was now preparing to do. The deacons cleared a space for abuelita, and I turned to look for Titi Carmen. She was standing in the back row with her wide feet rooted to the linoleum and her deep-set eyes tightly shut. Her face had a look of such joy, though, that she was almost truly beautiful. Then the man up front screamed, I whirled around to see him throw his hands in the air as he fell over to the floor. The nurses jumped up and dragged him over to the side of the room. Soon, there were seven bodies on that side of the room. I knew there were seven. I might not, might not have been able to speak Spanish, but I could sure count. I also knew that I was about to be next. As I turned to run, the largest deacon, the one I had heard some of the younger women call, call La gordita," or the fat one, behind her back, "'grabbed me and carried me to the front of the line. "'I felt the thick, greasy liquid drip onto my head. "'It smelled kind of like the Goya oil "'my abuelita fried her platanos in. "'I struggled, and La Gordita turned me around, "'crushing me against her bra. "'Her blouse had been the one with the missing buttons. "'And that bra, it wasn't an undergarment "'as much as a device, with multiple straps.' cross-your-heart stitching, smelly rubber and bulky cone-shaped cups. It mashed my face so completely that within seconds I felt as if I was suffocating. I struggled harder, but she clutched me into her humongous, smothering bosoms like a vise. With the last of my breath, I started crying. And as I did, I saw from far, far away one of the kittens from my mother's etching. It whispered to me that, I didn't have to be afraid. I could get away. If I wanted to. So with the last of my strength, I bit hard, right through the layers of stitching rubber and fabric and right into pliant, living flesh. La Gordita yelled and dropped me onto the floor where I sprawled, gasping, as the other deacon sprang to avenge her. One grabbed my legs. Another grabbed my arms. Still another gripped me by the crown of my head, and I heard yet another one say in English, This child has a demon! I closed my eyes, and I tried to find the kitten again, but it had gone. And I was fully awake and utterly trapped. I knew no one would save me now. And I wasn't sure what a demon was, but I was sure I was now going to hell, which I knew was where all bad people went to get punished. Was it because I couldn't speak their language? Was it my fault that my mother had gone away? I didn't know what I'd done. And as I awaited my fate, I smelled something familiar. It was my grandmother. The aroma of her perfume, which I'd much later learned was called Tigris, preceding her as she and Titi Carmen fought their way over to me. "'What are you doing?' they yelled in English and Spanish. Get to haces? Ella no entiende nada. "'She doesn't understand. She's only a child. "'You are the ones with the demons.'" La Gordita's minions released their death grip, and I was set back onto my feet. There was muttering, whispering, and then silence as Abuelita took my hand. With Titi Carmen walking shotgun, the congregation parted to let us through. Some of the people we passed had been, who had been smiling and attentive to me just an hour before were, were now looking at all three of us with angry faces. Others gave a look that said they felt bad, but they didn't know what to do. And a few others just looked at the floor. And just before we got to, to the door, I heard someone say in the first Spanish I ever fully understood, Vamos a rezar por ti." we'll pray for you. My abuelita turned, plucked a chicken feather out of my hair, and said, No, mi vida, I will pray for you. I thought I was going to be in trouble for getting abuelita and Titi Carmen kicked out of church, but they never said anything more to me about it. They just held their own church in abuelita's bedroom while they looked for another iglesia. And as it turned out, they would have had to anyway, because a couple of weeks later, the New York City Health Department, acting on an anonymous tip, raided the poultry market, closing it down, along with the church. Our and Titi Carmen eventually did find another iglesia a bit further uptown, but I wouldn't be going there with them. Oh, not because I had a demon or because I belonged in hell or because they didn't want to take me there anymore. Just the opposite. Finally, I was going home. We're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now it's time to showcase our featured guest artist for the week. Today's guest is not only a longtime member of the Radio Free Brooklyn family, she's someone I knew not only from back in the art store days of surf reality and collective unconscious, back in the 20th century, haha, but from storytelling and the moth in the early arts. And then again, a few years later, with the art stars again as the co-producer of the late... Great variety show called Radical Vaudeville. She's a storyteller, a solo performer, a musician, a maker, an alchemist, and an all-around awesome human. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua, Gabrielle Saint Evenson. Hi, Gabrielle. Hi, Michelle. Oh my God, this is about as close as we've ever stood to each other because we're like like crouched over this microphone. That's what happens when I forget the other microphone. <laughs> So, Gabrielle, we know each other for God since, like, back in the 20th century. And it's funny how we just would keep running to each other throughout our art lives.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the nice things about being in Lower Manhattan is uh, it felt like a, a tight-knit community, even whether it is or it isn't. It's one of those things that people say, oh, New York's such a big city. But what happens when you get so many people is you do get these smaller clusters. And I think we had a really interesting one.
0: Yeah, I think we did too. So it's funny the different paths that people take to becoming an artist. I mean, for me, I was a little redheaded Puerto Rican girl in the top floor tenement walk up in the Bronx who my dream was always to go to art school. And I never thought I I was going to be a visual artist. I never thought I would be a performer or a writer or have my own radio show. So what was your path? I think
1: one of the things that sums it up for me is, uh, at one point, somebody somebody was asking me something along these lines. And I said, everything I know, I learned from rock and roll. That makes sense. And that's because, um, I came from Miami. Uh, I'm of Cuban and Irish descent, but really pretty much just Cuban American. Um, it's not like I grew up with a, you know, the, too many potatoes on one side and too much rice on the other or something <laughs> like that. It was mostly rice. <laughs> if, if you're going to con papa. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you don't do that. But you no. do make, see, but we can get in the whole argument of how you make picadillo, and we always make it with little diced potatoes. So there was occasionally the potato and rice. But that's not an Irish thing. Never mind. In any case, very different from your upbringing. Growing up in Miami, it was very Republican and very... Um, very uh, proper and suburban and all this stuff. And everybody turned into a doctor or lawyer. And so basically in so Miami... So it was not Calle Ocho. My grandmother lived near Calle Ocho when I was very little, so I got a taste of it. And it was really fun. And it wasn't... I, w- I didn't remember it as being dirty particularly, but certainly not polished. Mm. And I loved the old buildings. And it was just more interesting. There was, you could walk. You didn't need a car. And and I think the people loved it because it reminded them a little bit more of Havana. Wow! And so, um, so I was there in the early sixties and early excuse me late late sixties early seventies, and um, and a lot of it still is like that. Uh, Miami has definitely evolved. In any case, uh, Uh, I bet they were having a party there this week, boy, banging the calderos. They were banging the calderos for sure for sure. In any case, uh, so if you can imagine walking over dead bodies and having to leave the only country you know 90 miles away uh, is the United States, you know, it seems close, but it was a totally different culture. So these people really took a chance. And that's what I grew up with, was was these very brave people. But they were also very educated and very confident. And so a man who was a, a doctor in Cuba, for example, would... Um come to Miami, stripped of his license, and maybe clean floors for a year or two, but within a few years, he would get his license again. He would learn English. Next thing you know, the same man would be practicing medicine,
0: you know, a few years later. And that was the key, learning English. I had a friend um, who also was from Cuba. Actually, her family had come on a raft, and the father was, I think, a civil engineer or something, but he couldn't get English like some people just don't have the ear for languages sure. and he ended up being a building super and from what i remember of him he was not a happy man you know because i don't think he ever was able to be at the top of his intelligence once he came to this country but it was better to be in this country than to starve in cuba so there you go
1: yeah those are some very sad stories i would say that the the majority of the people just even if they didn't learn English all that well, learned enough to pass the exams. Mm. And um, and so within a few years, certainly in the mid-70s, it, it, it never occurred to me that being Cuban was in any way beneath being uh, someone from Anglo descent. Right. As far as I was concerned, we were all Americans. Cubans are insanely patriotic about America. Oh, please. They are
0: more American than anybody. I please... It's true.
1: Oh, please, it is true. <laughs> no, porque Castro sucks, right? Everything Castro sucks, you know, the just, Oh, dear. You know, and so they, they were more American than anybody, which is such a strange concept to people who think of uh, Latins as being somehow a second class citizen. On the contrary, I was raised with the concept that I had two languages and that that was a very American idea that I could mm. ha- respect my heritage
0: and really love my country. And why can't you have two languages? I mean, that. That concept is part of why I developed my Carmen Mafungo performance character back when we were like hanging out mm-hmm. in the Surf Reality Collective Unconscious days. Because um, I had always been enamored with Carmen Miranda, and it, it struck me that every other. Um, what you would consider foreign accent was considered lovely and educated and suave except for a Latin one. And I was like, why is this? Why is a why is a Latino um accent considered less than? So I created the the character of Carmen Mafungo where I would use my grandmother's accent and I would say words like juxtaposition and congruence and stuff like that and people would be like, Well why is she saying these like fifteen syllable words with that accent? And I was like, nah, you're gonna get it. So, you know, that was that was my little protest like fifteen years ago. <laughs> well, hopefully that's changing. See, I always thought of I of think Latin's- it has, <laughs> yeah. It's, there's less of a stigma now to when to being Latin, at least in New York. I know you grew up in a very different environment in Miami, but like here, you were made to feel as a less than when you grew up here in the 1970s. It was like we were like at the bottom of, 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 of the barrel.
1: I moved here in 1983, and I had this friend named Evelyn, and she was so beautiful, and her father kept referring to the white man, and, and her father was so pale skin, he looked Italian in my eyes, or something like that, you know, um, and Latins come in all colors, oh, and yeah. my cousin has blonde hair and blue eyes, and I certainly don't, but whatever, It doesn't matter. We were raised to feel like we spoke English properly. We spoke Spanish properly. You just behaved as properly as you could. And the idea that you were Latin was never, ever about being second class. And I still love that that idea that when you have a second language or possibly a third, or at least a good basis for a third, I later learned German really easily because of my Spanish. All I could think of was, this makes me a better citizen, yeah, a, a, a more a more impor- certainly snobbier. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, you know, I think that um, there's a generational shift now. See, when I was young, w- my parents brought us up not to speak English. And now it's like, well, why aren't you bilingual? So I think people now are going back to like, yes, embrace your language, embrace your culture, be who you are. So it's, it's I think it's easier to be a Latino now. Here in New York, than it was in the 1970s.
1: Loud and proud.
0: Wha? Wha? <laughs>
1: right. I always think of Latin's more like the, um, the telenovelas. Mm. So instead of being in any way considered low class, they were just very dramatic. Ah uh, yes, I know, I see, I please, yeah. Everything. How
2: dare you? Mm. Everything's
1: super passionate. Matalo! Yeah, and they would pay someone to do it. They would pay someone to kill, mat, to matar is to kill, yeah. yeah. Which is like a matador, like with the with the bulls. It'll all come to you. You'll realize that half of what you're speaking in English is probably Spanish, yeah. and so that's um, true. <laughs> I exaggerate, but only slightly. In any case, so so yeah. So uh, the the problem that I had growing up was that they were too conservative and they didn't like artists, and it was all like about making money, which I respect, and certainly more now than I did.
0: The wisdom hey, was of my uh, of my elders is yeah. definitely hearkening now in a lot of ways. But nothing disrespectful about a middle class lifestyle. It's the other part of it that um it was just it was just very restrictive and the idea
1: that I wanted to be creative was just they were like that's nice but what are you going to do for real and that made me nuts and I said and I said well you know what I'm going to New York and I'm going to be an artist yay right so at 17 I left for NYU and never came back and I really really found my my emotional and and uh creative family wow I don't know you went to NYU
0: did you graduate I did graduate. Wow. Awesome. Um, but I, I, I didn't graduate. As an art, I graduated in comparative literature. Um, oh, I, and, I have an advertising degree from SVA, and look what we're doing now. Radio Free Brooklyn. Yeah, hello. <laughs> uh,
1: basically, it's uh, in dinner conversation and stuff. Uh, I ran out of money at some point. But um, but I started at NYU. Uh, I wanted to go to film school, but it was way too expensive. In any case, all I really wanted to do was get out because they were just so tight and and conservative and – And I just felt misunderstood, you know, the classic outsider artist complex. La, la,
0: la, la, la. But I never
1: left, and I just found my home with my freaks, and here we are.
0: And here we are. You know, it's funny because we had met back in my fungal days at Surf Reality and Collective Unconscious, which I think is the fountain from which all blessings flow. And then a few years after that, I met you again when I started doing storytelling with the moth, and you were doing stories too. Um, Tell us a little bit about the stories that you were telling at that time. This was like in the early aughts, like 2004, five, three. I'm going backwards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Because you can. I know. Do what you will. Um, the The story that got picked up was the one um, about the events that I was throwing. And the events that I, I was throwing were in uh, response to gentrification, in a sense. Um, and, and I know that that's part of your your commentary for this particular show. <clears throat> Part of the commentary for my body of work these days, but yes. Right. Um The main problem with gentrification in New York City, although it's happening really everywhere in the world, and and I'm seeing it, and it's just kind of where this generation is headed, I guess, is um, when you have something like social media joining everything together. There are pros and cons, and one of the problems is that you get a homogenization. So things start to become much more similar because you're being influenced by everything all at the same time. So instead of getting these little pockets like. You know, oh, this is happening in Cleveland, but to really experience it, you have to actually go there. No, you find out in seconds, and so as a result, we're all influenced by very similar stuff, and we're getting similar things. La 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 la. As a result, um, cities are becoming a little bit less
0: uh, interesting.
1: Well, because things are getting a little less interesting, and 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 everything is suddenly mainstream. It's very hard to find an underground. I know. That's the problem, is you lose your underground. Um, and so in order to have an underground, you just have to work harder to, to maintain that. At the same time, while the underground is a beautiful place to develop art, essentially you do want to break out and get known. Yeah, and you want to make money. If it, Well, if you want to be a professional artist. Yes, okay, yes. As opposed to a hobby. As a, yes, um, absolutely. So what I noticed uh, right when Giuliani was was, um, was mayor was he started off – getting rid of crime, which was fabulous, but then just some, like some kind of errant piranha, he just kept going. And so, next thing you know, he he went after just about everybody, and, and one of the things that he did was that he really came down on nightlife because he was, he saw the vision of really expensive apartments, and really expensive apartments can't be around nightclubs. And so he shut down thousands and thousands of bars and nightclubs.
0: I remember that, Dance Liberation Front.
1: Uh, the Dance the Liberation DLF. Front was... Uh, in, in reaction to the cabaret laws that he exhumed from the 20s or whatever yep. it was, which basically makes it illegal
0: to dance without a very expensive license. And we would protest. ¿Qué queremos? Bailando. ¿Cuándo queremos? Ahora. Yeah. <laughs> very good. What do you want dancing? When do we want it now?
1: Exactly. Uh, unfortunately, what happens is once a, a, a place... Pays for a cabaret license, they get angry that somebody else can get away with it without having one, and so as a result, the actual venues start to police it with you know yeah. themselves, and so it becomes very um, very nasty. And and so anyway, so I started to throw underground parties <laughs> in response to this. So the, the reason I mentioned all that other social media stuff is I don't know if people can even understand such a thing right now, but the, you know the need for this this underground kind of thing. So I started to throw these parties, and and I was making absinthe before you could really get it. And um, one of the things that happened a few years going into it was, while I tried to really keep a draconic door policy where. It was very difficult to get in. You had to be on a list, you had to dress a certain way, and and we threw it at people's houses and all this stuff. And you're not really supposed to have private parties where you allow people to contribute financially. Um not not in New York City. Anyway, so I did this for a while. And part the reason I shut it down. Was because they started to get so popular, and and almost the harder I made it to get in, the more popular they became. That's
0: a problem to have.
1: (laughs) Well, it was fun to a point, but then suddenly my friend's house, which would contain, she had a big loft, but we could contain probably 150 people easily. There was a moment in the night where we would have 300
0: people. Because people are starved for it. People are starved for it. It's like whatever was our Lower East Side all moved out to Bushwick and that's where that was a
1: Giuliani thing where he, yeah. he 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 changed the rent laws and suddenly it was more expensive mm-hmm. so so what happens is you can't just go out on a Wednesday night for a drink in Manhattan if you have to commute you probably won't bother and so it really changed the developing arts because then suddenly everything had to happen on the weekends which was the only time you could get an audience and so on and so forth anyway so I started doing these crazy underground parties and when people started asking for beer and they started to try to show up without being in costume. And they didn't know why they were there. They just knew that they should be there. Oh. And I had to start basically kicking them out and saying, you're not dressed for this. And they're like, who are you? I'm like, if you don't know who I am, you're you not died. in
0: <laughs> Oh, my God. Essentially. I can so picture you saying that, too. And uh,
1: one of the nice things about The Moth is they will occasionally rerun my show on New Year's Eve.
0: Yay! Oh, that's awesome. So it's nice. That's awesome. Anyway. So where do you see art headed and why do you think that we should never give up making our stories and and having them out there and be heard and included?
1: I think it's a human need. It's a human need to be heard. Um, And it's important to have a venue where there's a time and place for your story as opposed to being the shouter in the library. Um, And so we need venues and we need opportunities. And we have those with blogs and we have those with curated events. And we also have them with Radio Free Brooklyn. Absolutely. Um, But the most important thing, I think, is to not worry about the big corporations controlling things like radio. That's the problem is suddenly radio everywhere sounds exactly the same. That's that's the homogenization. So things like Radio Free Brooklyn, I think are really precious.
0: And yes, I do. Absolutely. And, you know, we're talking about like, Everything you learned was from rock and roll. I remember one of the Ramones. I don't remember which one. The Ramone. Maybe the last one left surviving said that we didn't know how to play our instruments. We just did it. I don't know how to do a radio show. And here I am doing it. So if you want to make some art, you don't have to learn. You'll learn from doing. Just do it. So, but, And you'll eventually get better. Yeah, yeah. eventually. <laughs> that, eventually. Was, that
1: was the rock and roll lesson. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you'll learn how to pronounce
0: things properly. Well, thanks, Gabrielle. And thank you, Michelle. It's been a real pleasure being here. And we're back on Radio Free Brooklyn with Fish Out of Agua. The next story from Fish Out of Agua is about cities and neighborhoods, specifically New York City and how it was back in the day-day, and also a little bit on a subject that's on a lot of New Yorkers' minds these days, gentrification. Now, gentrification has always been a part of life in New York City, but it seems that lately it's gotten a bit out of control. And I know no matter what city you live in and no matter how long you've lived there or when you moved there, chances are, since you did move there, something changed. Maybe the building or the house you lived in when you first moved there was eminent domain for a new development. Maybe the bar or club where you saw that band on that night, maybe that was just torn down for a college dorm. Or maybe your favorite restaurant, movie theater, or long-standing neighborhood mom-and-pop store suddenly closed down and in its place appeared a big-box chain store or yet another ATM. This evolution of a neighborhood used to happen over a decade or two. But now in New York City, we're experiencing what many call hypergentrification, where the changes that once happened over a human generation now happen over the time of a human's gestation. Think on that for a minute. In 1966, my family were pretty much reverse gentrifiers, or what I like to call hente fires, when we moved up to the Northeast Bronx in the early spring of that year. We were actually part of the very first wave of Latinos coming north from the South Bronx, which would soon burn, and... Latinos were also coming from Washington Heights and El Barrio, some of which were already burning. And so, in that sense, my Mayflower Puerto Rican family were once again pioneers. In 1966, when this story begins, the average income per year was $6,900. A new house set you a little bit over 14 grand. Ah, huh, you want a dishwasher? Well, that's going to cost you $119.95. And if you wanted disposable diapers, well, you were in luck because Pampers, the very first disposable diapers, entered the marketplace. Oh, I almost forgot. That brand new car, $2,650. Was it the same in 65? Wow, how did the price not go up? Well, Gallup polls showed American public support for the Vietnam War changed from over 52% supporting the war in 1965, to just 37% in 1966. Also in 1966, at the University of California's Berkeley campus, the student union staged a sit-down protest, and a number of students were arrested. Heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali, formerly known as Cassius Clay, declared himself a conscientious objector and refused to go to war. And the revolutionary group the Black Panthers were formed. Also in 1966, the city of Florence, Italy, suffered a major flood with thousands of historic books, manuscripts, and fine art totally destroyed. And four people successfully dug underneath the Berlin Wall to gain freedom from the Soviet Union-controlled East Germany. And now, the incoming administration talks about building another wall. Yeah, exactly. Popular films in 1966, Batman! Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, One Million Years B.C., The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and Andy Warhol's Chelsea Girls. The original Star Trek and How the Grinch Stole Christmas made their television debuts, and hit songs included Summer in the City, I'm a Believer, and You Keep Me Hanging On by the Supremes. Born this year were Gordon Ramsay, Janet Jackson, Sinead O'Connor and Mike Tyson, and the world-lost Buster Keaton, Lenny Bruce, and one of the foremothers of the celebrity gossip culture we enjoy today, Hedda Hopper. And now, Chapter 8 from Fish Out of Agua, Pioneers, or Little Enough to Ride for Free, Little Enough
2: to Ride Your Knee. We had just left Grandma Izzy's, who I also hadn't
0: seen for a while. She'd smothered me in kisses and stuffed me with arroz dulce, dulce de coco, and ice cream. And now my father was taking me somewhere else to show me a surprise before dropping me back off at Grandma Mari's. He swung my hand and whistled as we walked to the bus stop. Being alone with my father for an entire day was fun enough, and I couldn't imagine where we were going or what was going to happen when we got there. The bus ride to who knows where was long and boring. We sat across from the driver. I tried to kneel on the seat to look out the window, but my father told me to get back down, so I swung my my legs around and looked at the lady next to me as she opened her pocketbook and took out a photoplay magazine. In case you didn't know, the cult of celebrity obsession was in full force long before People Magazine, MTV, or TMZ. Photoplay was one of the first publications to cover celebrity gossip, exposing scandals and secrets from the dawn of the silent film era straight through 1980 when its staff was moved to Us magazine. I knew Photoplay existed because before my mother got sick, she would sit me on her lap while she was reading it, and she would point out the words. The ladies' magazine was open to a big picture of a man and a woman. The man looked kind of sleepy. The woman had a lot of blue ma- eye makeup on, a lot more than even Titi Orfaglio or Dulce ever wore, and their faces were very, very close together. I pretended that instead of sitting next to my father on a boring bus, I was sitting on my mother's lap again, and I looked closer at the magazine to sound out the words Elizabeth Taylor? Richard Burton, naked lust. The woman snapped the magazines shut, and the bus driver whirled around. Pay your fare, he boomed. What? My father said she ain't gonna be six till July. I swear. Yeah, no five-year-old reads Naked Lust. Shame on her, and shame on you too. Pay your fare. I remember this entire conversation happened with the bus driver looking straight at my father and me. I only hoped the bus was not also moving at the same time. My father didn't pay. it was the principal, after all. And he slung me gently over his shoulder as we got off the bus, but not before getting one last swipe at the driver. Yeah, I bet your kids can't read. But when he put me on my feet, he said, ''I told you, no reading on the bus.'' Now come on, before it gets dark. We walked up a lot of stairs to a train. I ducked under the turnstile as my father dropped in his token. When we got up to the platform, he smiled and he pointed to a sign. Well, you can read now if you want. What does that say? A uh, town? Pelham um, Bay Park? Park? But there was no park when we got off the train, only the elevated train tracks which we walked under for a couple of blocks. We passed an old-looking church that took up an entire block, a huge, weathered, grey stone building in between two grey graveyards with bare-limbed trees, everything grey in the late winter sun. It wasn't like the iglesias my abuelita and Titi Carmen had taken me to, not at all. In fact, this entire neighborhood looked different. The streets didn't have as much garbage in them, especially dog doo-doo, and it was a lot quieter. There weren't as many people walking in the street, and no one was playing dominoes or leaning against the walls in front of buildings, and no one was drinking out of brown paper bags. We crossed the street and walked along a long block of apartment buildings lined up side by side. Where are we going? Were we going to visit someone? I went through my entire family in my head, but I couldn't think of who it could be. I looked at my father. he stopped whistling and looked like he was thinking very hard about something. When we, got to the building on, when we got to the building on the corner, he pushed open the door and we went in. There was a big open hallway with stairs going to the right and to the left. We went to the right and walked up some more stairs. Now there was music loud music coming from behind a few of the closed doors. Some of the floors smelled bad, like the time when Abuelita had a tummy ache and Titi Ophelia came over to cook, but the, all the food had to be thrown away and we had to eat Rice Krispies for dinner. Where are we going? Who lived here? My father had dropped my hand and started to go into his jacket pocket. He climbed faster and told me to hurry up. Finally, we stopped in front of a door. It said, 5C. My father fumbled in his jacket pockets again, then his shirt and finally into his pants. Soon there was a small pile of stuff tossed onto the tile floor. I sat down to inspect everything. Wallet, pack of camels, lighter, handkerchief, a rubber band, half a roll of five flavor lifesavers, peppermint chiclets, and what I was hoping to find, chuckles. I popped the sugar-sprinkled orange jelly candy into my mouth. Hold on! Oh, son of a bitch, son of a bitch, I heard my dad mutter. I knew grown-ups were allowed to say bad words when they lost things, but kids weren't. A couple of more bad words later, he squatted down next to me, turning over each object he tossed on the floor, looking at each thing over and over again before he finally stuffed it back into one of his pockets. Had he lost something? His face was red and he looked as if he was mad at something or someone. But I knew it wasn't me. He then let out a long breath that was kind of like a whistle. Only there was no music in it. (sighs) Oh well, he said. The surprise is... We're getting ice cream! We went back downstairs and down the block to an ice cream parlor underneath the L. It was wide and bright. "'with dark polished wood, shiny green marble, and gleaming brass. "'We sat at the counter on red stools that twirled around, "'which I did until my father stopped me "'by gently placing one of his hands on the top of my head "'and shaking the index finger of his other. "'He looked as if he was about to tell me something, "'but, the, but then a man wearing a white jacket and hat "'appeared and smiled at us. "'And then a train came by, "'and my dad had a yell over it to be heard.' This is my little girl I was telling you about. She don't go to school yet, but she could read. The counterman yelled back, Nah, really? He smiled again and handed me the menu. My father let me order the black and white ice cream sodas. And when the man went off to make them, my father turned to me and said, That building we were in? That's our new building. That apartment we were at? That's where we're going to live. Next week when your mother comes home but I wanted to show you first. The ice cream sodas came, and I started mine right away. (laughs) This was the second time I was having ice cream in one day, and I was going to finish it before my father realized it and took it away. He wasn't paying any attention, though. He kept talking. I don't know what happened. I must have left the keys somewhere. And, uh, don't tell anyone I brought you here today. It's our secret, right? Right? and he started drinking his ice cream soda. So my father had finally done it. Whether by hitting the number, finding a bag of cash that fell off a truck, or creating some other urban legend, my dad had finally managed to get Kevin and me out of Abuelita's house. The apartment he'd misplaced the keys for was ours. (sighs) That was so like him. He always tried to do stuff, but it hardly ever turned out right but he'd always smile or make a joke, and hardly anyone could stay angry with him. At least I couldn't. Not today, anyway, when I had double ice cream in my belly. And this was a good secret. I could keep this, and it wouldn't feel bad. Not at all. As we finished our sodas, it was starting to get dark. We got back on the train, and he took me back to Grandma Marty's, but it would be for the last time. My mother was finally coming home for good. In exactly one week, we would all be together again, at last, on St. Peter's Avenue, in a no-name neighborhood in the Northeast Bronx between Parkchester and Pelham Bay Park, a few stops from the end of the number 6 train. It was a neighborhood I would call home for the next 21 years. I knew this was not going to be like living at Abuelita's at all. And this wasn't anywhere near the neighborhoods we'd lived before my mother became ill. One thing I noticed about this neighborhood was that everyone spoke English. The other, as I remembered the sparse orange scruff on top of the counterman's head, there were people that kind of looked like me. Would I have friends? Would there be more ice cream? And what was my mother going to say? Was it going to be a surprise for her, too? I hoped she would like it. I thought I would. I couldn't wait for us all to be together again. Like a real family. And that's our show. This has been Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. If you liked what you've heard today or on a past episode, please consider supporting this show with Patreon. Just go to the Fish Out of Agua page on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and click on the Sponsor This Show button. It's right there, the green button. Sponsor the show. It's that easy. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next week, and we'll leave you with your very own city, Cities from Talking Heads. See you next week.